0: Thanks for listening to ITRIS, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. You know, I haven't heard the expression, uh in a while, but when I uh, was younger, I used to hear about uh, the light bulb coming on. Um, You know, that was a light bulb moment. It was kind of that indication that it just finally dawned on someone. The expression you hear now is, uh, you know, that's a come-to-Jesus moment. You heard that? Who's heard that expression? Okay, most of us here have heard it. You know, I was kind of wondering, what is in the world is a come-to-Jesus moment? And so I did what uh, you're supposed to do. I Googled it. And uh, here is what a come-to-Jesus moment is. According to Merriam-Webster, it's a moment of sudden realization, comprehension, or recognition that often precipitates a major change. Did you get that? It's a moment of sudden realization or comprehension or recognition that often precipitates a major change. Well, you know what? If there was ever a come-to-Jesus moment in all the Bible, it's the event that we're going to look at today. Now, where are we in Matthew's telling of Jesus' story? Jesus has been presenting himself as the king, and the kingdom is imminent repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand and what we've seen is that the leaders the official decision makers they've said no way in fact they've come up with an explanation that Jesus is of Satan and we don't want anything to do with him and so it's just a matter of time before they are going to reject him totally and so what Jesus is now doing is he is preparing his disciples for what comes next. Because the kingdom has been kicked down the road. It's going to be delayed. He's actually going to die on the cross, be buried, raised, go back to heaven, and someday he will come back to inaugurate the kingdom. And there's going to be something else. And the disciples... We're going to become the apostles, and they were going, and Jesus is now in that season where he is preparing the disciples to be the leaders of that next season. Well, we now come to Matthew 16. So if you got a Bible, I really want to encourage you to open it up, or if you're using your phone, you can uh, find it on your phone. If you want to use the version that I use. I'm using the New American Standard. Uh, Go to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to be at verse 13. Jesus and his disciples are now in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's way up north. In fact, it's as far away from Jerusalem as you could possibly get and still be in the land, still be in the country. It's up there at the what they call the headwaters of the Jordan River, way above the Sea of Galilee. The, the, the headwaters of the Jordan River, it kind of collects, it flows in to the Sea of Galilee, and then it flows out of the Sea of Galilee all the way down and then flows into the Dead Sea. This is way, way up north. So Jesus has now taken his 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 band of men as far away from Jerusalem as he possibly could get. The crowds aren't there. They're by themselves, and no doubt he's been talking to them about some really important stuff, and and you kind of get the picture. It's not a big group by now. I mean, it was probably more than just the 12, but not that many more. And they're gathered around, and they're having a discussion. Maybe you could picture there's a campfire going on. It's kind of one of those times when when people just get a little bit more real, a little bit more serious, a little bit more authentic. And look what happens, okay? Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man referring to himself. And they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been this famous preacher that announced who Jesus was, and he'd gotten executed. Uh, Remember, we saw that a couple weeks ago. John the Baptist, he's dead. But people say, hey, he's John the Baptist. Come back to life. Or maybe you're Elijah. Others are saying you're Jeremiah. Or or, or others are just saying you're one of the prophets. And then look at verse 15. They'd been discussing who the crowds think Jesus is. And then Jesus turns it and he says, but who do you say that I am? See verse 15, verse, see the word you, but who do you? That word is plural. If Jesus had been from Texas, he would have said, but who do y'all say that I am? It wasn't that he was just looking at Peter or James or John or Matthew or Philip or Thomas or Bartholomew or Judas Iscariot. He just looked at them as a group, and he said, who do you say that I am? Now, let's just stop right here. You know what? Jesus just asked the absolute most important question that could ever be asked in any era. Because here's the deal. It is what a person does with Jesus Christ that matters for all eternity. Eight billion people alive today. You know what the major question in every one of their lives is? Who's Jesus Christ? Some of them never even heard of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how does that work? It works but that's a sermon for another day. But here's the deal. What you do, what you think, how you respond to Jesus Christ is the most important question. The most important question is not who's going to be the next president. The most important question is not are they going to take care of inflation before it's time for me to retire? Are they going to take care of, you know, this this gender stuff before my kids have to grow up and figure out how all that works, or my grandkids. Now, the most important question is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And Jesus had just had this little discussion with, with his guys and they said, well, some people think you're Jeremiah. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people just think you're you're one of the prophets. And Jesus said, great. Who do you say that I am? And the question that you need to ask and answer, that I need to ask and answer, is who is Jesus Christ? I mean, it was C.S. Lewis, I think, that that put it down? I mean, there's really only three answers. He's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either lying through his teeth, and he's the greatest con artist that ever lived, or he had to be one of those possessed person that had this incredible personality that dreamt up all this stuff and he's a lunatic he's just nuts or he is lord and by implication if he's lord he is the savior so look at look at look at what happens i'm sure that when he asked that question there was like this pregnant pause It's like, how do you kill a conversation? You ask people, what do you think about Jesus Christ? It still works today, okay? (laughs) You want to destroy lunch conversation with the guys out at work? Who do you guys think Jesus Christ is? That's what Jesus asked them. Who do you think the Son of Man is? And then you got to love it. Look at verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who do you say that I am? And I love the way Matthew writes this. Remember, Matthew is writing about this incident 30 years later. And it's like, you know, get this. That's the, this is the only place where Matthew calls him Simon Peter. It's almost like the trumpets blared and he said, get this folks, Richard John Hornock said this. It's like this is the greatest declaration (laughs) there could be. Uh, Let's just break it down here. What, What was it that Peter said? He said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. See, the Greek word Christ is the Hebrew word Messiah. And basically, Peter, the first thing he's saying is, you're it. You're the one that God spoke of back in Genesis 3 when he said, someone's going to come along and crush the head of Satan. You're the one that Moses was talking about when he said, in Deuteronomy 17, there's going to be a prophet arise. You think I'm great? There's going to be a prophet arise, and he will lead you. I mean, in a way, when they got so frustrated with all the the judges and the people said, we want a king, where they got the idea of was not just from the nations. I mean, there has been, from the dawn of history, the promise that there was going to be a king who would come. I mean, this is... is, uh, The one that David said of the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies into a footstool. I mean, Simon Peter is here saying, Jesus, you're it. All of history has been pointing to you, and all of history will now point back to you. You are it. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we have been looking forward to since the dawn of history. I mean, you're the one that Isaiah spoke about when he talked about that that great shepherd. You're the one that Isaiah spoke about when he talked about that suffering servant who was going to bear our sins. That's what Peter was saying you're the Messiah. He was saying all of history is going to revolve around you because you are going to be what Job said. I mean, Job, 2,000 years before Jesus said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand upon the earth in the latter days. Job nineteen twenty five. He's saying, you're it. You're going to be the one that solves this sin problem we have. I mean, Peter was saying, Jesus is the center of it all. He is the answer to the most important question that life could pose. And then he follows it up and he says, you are the son of the living God. You know, we've got to put our heads back into Hebrew culture. Because when you talk about someone being a son, you basically were saying, he's the same thing. You know, if, if, if you talked about me and said, well, he's the son of John Hornock. Of course, now I'm mostly known as the father of Jonathan Hornock. But, you know, what I'm saying here is, is you'd say, oh, there's a difference. He ain't his dad. He certainly isn't his son. But the truth of the matter is, in Hebrew culture... To say someone was the son of, they're the same. They are equal. That's why when when, when Jesus was claiming to be the son of God in John 5, the Pharisees, who understood very well what he was saying, picked up rocks to try to kill him. Because the guy had just said, I'm God. So when Peter says here, I am, you are Jesus, the son of God, he's saying, you're God. So not only are you the center of all of history, not only are you the solution to sin, not only are you the one that everything is going to revolve around, because in you, everything holds together, you're God. You're God. And Peter was here saying that out loud for the first time. I'm pretty sure it wasn't the first time he thought about it, but it was the first time that he had been put into a situation where he had to actually say it out loud. Peter was saying, you're the Messiah. You're God. And, and everyone else is like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, in Vicki's and my relationship, there's there's uh three dates that are really special to us. Okay, two two four four six six, two two four four six six. 224466. February 2nd, we went to church and uh met each other at church. I didn't know it, but Vicki's mom, I'd met her the week before. I liked the church, and I went back to church the next Sunday, February 2nd. And uh, met this lady with this thick Russian accent. The only thing I can remember about her is she had a daughter at Baylor. And so I said, hey, is your daughter from Baylor here? And she said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, she is. And so I met Vicky. We sat together in Sunday school. Another good reason to come to those 930 ministries. You never know who you're going to sit next to. And, uh, you know, we, we got to know each other. 4-4, April 4th, our first date. You say, what happened so long? Why did it take so long? Well, my first and only mistake. You know, I should have done it on February 4th. But 4-4, we met each other on February 2nd. 4-4, we went out on our first date. 6-6, June 6th, her birthday. Also happens to be three of our grandchildren's birthday. You know what happened on June 6th? By intention. She asked me to marry her. No. (laughs) No, you know what happened on June 6th? I told her I loved her and I declared my intention that I was going to marry her, that I wanted to marry her. Now, I was very careful to to not ask a question because I was poor as a church mouse and I couldn't even hardly afford to buy her dinner, let alone buy her a ring and be prepared for life together and all that stuff. But on June 6th, I declared my intention that i want to marry you i love you i want to marry you and you know what vicky said you got to go talk to my dad and i'm like i didn't ask you any questions and she said yeah but you still got to go talk to my dad and so i did and we went and had a nice conversation but you know what when i made that declaration everything changed I mean, all of a sudden, we weren't just a couple of people that would bump into each other at church and sit next next to each other in Sunday school and church. You know, no longer was it just, hey, I'm free Friday night. You got anything going on? Let's do it. I mean, no. All of a sudden, June 6th, from then on, our relationship changed. Why? Because I had said it out loud. I love you and I want to marry you. What Peter said right then, a public declaration, it changed everything. And it was huge in those people's lives. And you think, you know, if you remember, what is Jesus doing? He's preparing them for life after the cross without a kingdom. He's preparing them to become the leaders of the church and they don't even know there is a church. But look what Jesus does. Okay? So he asks them that most important question and then he says, "Okay, here's what's going to happen." Now, now look at verse 17, I skipped that. He said Jesus answered and said to him, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I think he's, he's referring there to the fact that, you know what, these, these spiritual truths, these theological truths, we are so totally depraved, we would never re- recognize them. We would never come to realize them if we were not for the Holy Spirit inside of us. I mean, I think it's in John 6 where it says, no man comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draw them. It is like he was saying, Peter, you didn't just get that on your own. Peter, that that was from God inside of you declaring me to be the Messiah, declaring and recognizing me as the Son of God. Well, look at verse 18. He says, And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Just look at verses 18, 19, and 20. I mean, there is so much packed in there. There's already so much packed as we saw in verse 16. Let me just kind of break it down. Here's actually the most important thing. Jesus finally introduces to them the church. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, it's kind of really interesting to just sit and think about this thing from a scholarly standpoint, because Jesus is speaking Aramaic. And when Matthew recorded it and wrote it, he's recording it in Greek. And strategically, Matthew, for the first time, and only one other time will he do it, none of the other gospel writers even do it, he will use that Greek term ekklesia, which we translate church. And I think that, that Matthew was there signaling to us, this is the first time we had ever heard about this thing called the church. I mean, we got hints of it, Back in all those stories in Matthew 13, when Jesus was telling these stories about the mystery form of the kingdom and about how the kingdom is kind of going to get kicked down the road a little bit, which it did. Remember, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's just right there. Trouble is, is they rejected the king. Instead of putting the king on a throne, they put him on a cross, and the king went back to heaven with the promise that someday he'd come. And so the kingdom that was at hand got kicked down the road a while. What's going to happen in the meantime? We just found out. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And I love it. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Now think about it. Gates, what an analogy. Gates are usually there in the walls, to either keep people in or keep people out. But it's a barrier. And what Jesus is saying is the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, something on the outside is going to go snatch it in, go snatch from within and pull them out. And I think it's a great consistent analogy of the fact that, that we're all sinners, And we are all on the highway to hell. We're born sinners, just like we saw last week. Our heart is deceitful, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? We are born on our way to hell. And God, who is rich in mercy, came and snatched us out of that. What does a person need to do to go to hell? Nothing. That's how they're born. A person... That wants to go to heaven that is going to go to heaven trusts in jesus christ and the gospel reaches in grabs them and pulls them back and along with it is is what peter was what what jesus said happened with peter the holy spirit revealed that to him and how that all works big big discussion sermons for another day but here's what jesus is saying the church is triumphant I mean, I think so many times we, we look around and with the culture and wars and all that stuff, it's like the church is just getting totally irrelevant. I mean, the vast majority of people don't even darken the door of a church. You know, unfortunately, many people who, who are, call themselves churchgoers don't even see it as, as something worth getting to, you know, much more than three out of five Sundays. We always can find some excuse to be gone. Why should it be a priority? But Jesus is saying, you know what, guys? I'm going to build my church. That's the most important thing here. Now, you probably are familiar with this passage, and you know, hey, there's a lot of other things that are there. Let me just kind of talk through them real quickly, give you some conclusions. If you want to go do some research, I can direct you. But there's basically a wordplay on Peter's name here. The name Peter basically means rock, You know, we've all heard of Rock Hudson or Rocky, the the boxer. I went to seminary with a guy named Rock Bottomley. I think his dad must have had a great sense of humor. But that was his real name. His dad was a fighter pilot, and he had his first son, and he named him Rock. Their last name was Bottomley, and this guy was Rock Bottomley. You know, ended up becoming uh, kind of a famous preacher, especially with a name like that. He worked for Focus on the Family, but Rock. Well, Jesus, when he first met Peter, Simon... He started calling him Peter, which basically is rock or rocky. Look what Jesus says there. Jesus said, I say that you are Peter, rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, basically, three ways you can understand it. The Catholics think that this is Jesus declaring Peter as the rock, Upon which the church is built. Catholics think that Peter was the first pope in Rome. Really, actually, a very, very poor understanding of this passage. I mean, there, there's there's just so many better pa- uh, understandings of this passage. Because really, if you look at it, what Jesus is doing here, and it may not come out that closely in our English translation, but Jesus is making a contrast. You're Peter, you're a rock but it's on this rock. So it's it's not Peter, you're the rock that the church is going to be built on. It's Peter, you're rock, but there's another rock. And what's that other rock? Basically two understandings there. One is this declaration that that Peter just made. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Or maybe even better, you're the rock, Jesus. And it's like Jesus is, is maybe you could see him gesturing. If they're all sitting around a campfire and they've just had this, this, you know, come to Jesus moment, to be honest. I mean, he said, Peter, you're a rock, but it's on this rock that the church is going to be built. And he could have been referring to what Peter just said, but I think actually more accurately and more consistently with the passage, he's saying it's upon me that this church is going to be built. But then look, verse 19, he says, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, we don't hardly know what that means, but we do know that it does not mean that Peter is the gatekeeper up there at the pearly gates, and you've got to say the right thing to him to get in, okay? That's how most of us think of it. That's where that thing is, is, oh, Peter's guarding the pearly gates so we can get in. What's the magic word, Peter? Peter doesn't have that kind of authority at all. None of the disciples ever had that authority. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life but it's obvious that that jesus is declaring that peter's got some kind of authority perhaps it's the authority he exercised in the book of acts in acts 2 he's the one that declared the gospel to the jews in acts 8 he's the one that declared the gospel to the samaritans in acts 10 He's the one that's declared the gospel for the first time to the Gentiles. Maybe it's that he had the keys to open up the gospel to all these different people groups that every transition was a major transition for the church. And he said, Peter, you're going to be the quarterback that drives the the team down and gets them into that territory. And then something else, he talks about... What you loose here, it's already been loosed up in heaven. What you bind here, it's already been bound up in heaven. And that, in a way, is, is, is really, really comforting. And by the way, here he's given it to Peter, but over in Matthew 18, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, he gave it to all the disciples and by implication even gave it to us, to the church. And, and I think what he's speaking there to is, is that, Jesus Christ is so intricately involved in the church because, as Paul said, this is the body of Christ. This is, this is, this is what God is doing right now while we're waiting for the kingdom. He is basically saying, I, I am going to empower you and lead you and guide you. And when you make decisions and you make activity and you, you put do some initiatives, I'm going to be working through you. And I think basically, in a way, he's assuring us that, you know what? You're not just here as a country club without a golf course. You're doing the most important spiritual work on the face of the earth. And I honestly believe that. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ is the most dynamic, powerful force that there is on the face of the earth. I mean, your marriage is so much better when you are right smack dab in the middle of the church. Your children and your family life is so much better when you are smack dab in the middle of the church. You, you, this accountability and, 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 and uh, uh, the, the wherewithal to withstand temptation is so much stronger when you are smack dab in the middle of the church. When you get to the periphery of the church, or heaven forbid, step away from the church, man, you are a sitting duck. Why? Because you know what? No soccer team can do that for you. No business club can do that for you. No, No social entity can do that for you. No physical extended family can do that for you. You know what? Only the church of Jesus Christ can provide you with that kind of protection. It is the most undervalued asset on the face of the earth. But the most dynamic thing, it is the conduit through which God is working right now. The kingdom's been kicked down the road. What's God doing now? He's working through the church. So let me me just kind of wrap this up and pull it all together here some. I always like to ask the question, so what? Well, the first so what's all have to do with what I was just talking about. He is talking here about the church being the center of God's work. This church universal, but also as it is manifested in church local. It is the church that is the center of God's work. And and your walk with Jesus Christ is really and truly going to be directly related to your relationship to the church. You you just can't get along without it, to be real honest. You, You can fool yourself and think you're getting along well without it, but you're really not. You're very vulnerable. And, and, and should you not stumble, it is only by God's grace because you're out on a tightrope. I mean, it is the church through which Jesus Christ is working. Right now, Christ, Jesus said, of one thing, I will build it. I will build the church. That's what Jesus is doing right now. It is the body of Christ. The church is triumphant. So the logical thing, as I say many, many times, is run to the absolute center of this church. Run to the center of the community of Christ and be part of it. That's what Jesus is saying here in response to this great declaration that Peter just made. Are you there? Is that your attitude? Is that the respect you show towards the church of Jesus Christ? Is that the value you place on it? I mean... If anything, the thing that is, is 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 just putting us in such a vulnerable position these days is our cavalier attitude about the community of Christ. We can take it or leave it. It's like, hey, you know, it's like a fresh movie. I'm going to go catch it at 10:45 Sunday morning and catch a little lunch, and rest of the day I'm the rest of the week I'm good. Not so. Jesus calls us to, to, to come in to that gathering and be part of this body of Christ that is ministering to, to, to one another and, and is, is this platform upon which the gospel is disseminated. Remember uh, 1 Timothy 3, I think it's verse 15? Paul is writing to Timothy to tell him how to be a good Pastor. And after three chapters and 14 verses in verse 15, he finally says, I'm writing to you so that you will know how to function in the church of Christ, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's like this thing that holds up the truth. I mean, your individual voice is great, but it is the corporate message of the church that Jesus Christ can really use. And boy, if he has gutted anything today, it is the message of the church. I mean, because we, we can't even figure out, you know, who should be married and who shouldn't be married, who should be a guy and who should be a girl. And, you know, what do we do with this person and that person? And when someone says, you know, hey, I'm taking it or leaving it, and I'm leaving it right now, we're like, oh, sorry, you know, I guess there's nothing I can do about it. I mean that hardly sounds like the aggressiveness that we storm the gates of hell going after people. I mean the church is where it is at. And 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 I think if there's anything that all of us need to walk away from this passage saying it's God I need to be working where you're working and where Jesus Christ is working right now is through the church, through the community of Christ mixing it up with other believers and becoming this force that takes Texarkana for the gospel of Christ. It is the most undervalued, underutilized asset on the face of the earth, and yet it is so dynamic. No wonder Satan is so opposed to it. One more, so what? What? And I'm making kind of a hard transition here. But you know what? I find it very fascinating that this kind of became the hinge of the whole book of Matthew. Because there's just something about that public declaration that Peter made. I mean, who knows? Maybe for weeks, months, he's been thinking about it. And I'm sure he wasn't alone. The other people were thinking about it. But all of a sudden, he said it out loud. You know, I'd been thinking about it for weeks, maybe in a month or two. I love that woman. I want to marry that woman. But you know what? When I said it out loud, it changed everything. When's the last time you've said to someone, you know what? I believe Jesus Christ is the center of it all. I think he's God. He's not a lunatic. He's certainly not a liar. He is my Lord. When have you said that? I mean, we we steer away from those opportunities to declare that we're Christ followers. We're Jesus people. And, And what a shame. Because it's like if we don't speak it out, it's like it just erodes. Not just out there, it erodes even in our heart. I mean, I have no problem telling people that I love her and that I'm committed to her. Do I have trouble telling people that I love Jesus Christ and I'm committed to him because he died for me to save me? There is something about that public declaration. You know, we're going to close our service by observing the Lord's table. And you know what we're really doing when we observe the Lord's table? We are declaring his death until he comes. That's what Paul said we were doing. 1 Corinthians 11. We're declaring his death and all that it means. And here's what I want you to do. I want you in these next couple moments to use this time as a time to, to declare to yourself and to this community, that you understand and know and believe what this stuff represents. His body that was crucified for you, his blood that washed away. That's what the bread represents. The bread represents his body, which is broken for us. The cup, the juice, represents his blood that washed away our sins and provided us with incredible forgiveness. We're declaring, we believe that. I mean, do not take this if that's not what you believe. Do not not just get some juice and some crackers. This isn't just snacks. This is us declaring, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And then while you're, you're, you're doing that and thinking and pondering, I want you to ask God to give you opportunity this week to declare it. I mean, maybe to that person in the cubicle next to you, maybe that person on the other side of the street, maybe that that antagonistic person that you've never even wanted to tell them that you go to church, let alone you're a Jesus freak. I mean, truth of the matter is, I think God wants to give us opportunity to declare out loud what he gave Peter the opportunity to do. So I'm gonna ask the guys to come and uh, they'll distribute the, the cup and the bread. And let's think about all that as they're doing so.